This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome back to Case of the Sunday Scaries. I'm Elise, and today we are back for the final installment of the Lori Vallow saga. Before I get started today, I need to do a big trigger warning for this episode. I'm going to be discussing, at times in detail, the murder of children. I know this case is a difficult one. It's been a difficult one for me to research, and I imagine there's going to be times when I lose my cool during this episode. But I think it's an important one to cover to not only remember the victims of Lori, Chad, and Alex, but to understand how cult-like religious extremism can and has played a role in these murders and the loss of so many lives throughout history. If this isn't the episode for you, I totally understand. Take care of yourself, and I hope you'll join us for a future episode. With that said, let's dive in. We left off with Alex, Lori, JJ, and Ty Lee visiting Yellowstone National Park on September 8, 2019. At this point, we know that Lori Vallow believed that Ty Lee and JJ had been taken over by evil spirits, that they were, as she put it, zombies. So let's discuss this zombie claim, shall we? You may remember me discussing Melanie Gibb and her friendship with Lori. She was the one that first introduced Lori and Chad. I'm going to refer to her here on out as Gib so that her and Melanie Boudreaux, Lori's niece, do not get confused. Gib first became aware of this belief in zombies in early 2019. She remembered being on the phone with Lori and heard Lori call her daughter Tylee a zombie, to which Tylee responded, Not me, Mom. Why did Lori call her daughter a zombie that day? Because she didn't want to babysit her little brother JJ. Lori had informed Gib that Tylee had become a zombie when she was 12 or 13. And so let's just think about that for a minute. Tylee was probably going through the normal stages of adolescence. I know I was an absolute nightmare to my mom at that time in my life. And my mom, probably in her head, had some very choice names I'm sure she wanted to call me too. However, I find it very convenient that when Tylee, who at a young age had already gone through so much turmoil in the home, a crazy custody battle between Lori and her dad, Joe Ryan, moving all over the darn place every few years, heck, having Lori as a mother would be a lot for a child. Now she is in her teen years. Her dad has passed away. She said her and her stepdad, Charles Vallow, didn't really get along that well. So is it any wonder that maybe this child, who had gone through a lot of trauma and uncertainty, would act out? How many teens don't want to stay home and babysit their younger siblings? While we know she loved JJ, he was also diagnosed autistic, and I'm sure at times could have had outbursts that perhaps would be upsetting or hard to manage for a teenager. But does that make her a zombie? No, it makes her a teenager that has experienced far too much in her years, and is now dealing with a mother and her extreme religious beliefs. 
I, you know what? I shouldn't even call them religious beliefs because I feel like it's an abomination what these people did in the name of God. So let's just call them cult beliefs. But a zombie? No. Tyler was a teenager that deserved to be nurtured and loved and probably provided with some mental health counseling for all that she had already endured. Chad and Lori told others that when the physical body was taken over by a dark spirit, that person would be in limbo. When they performed these castings, those spiritual prayers that acted as long-distance exorcisms, they believed they could remove the spirit from the physical body. But unlike exorcisms discussed in Catholicism or maybe in your favorite horror movies, Chad and Lori believed that if they were successful in these castings, then the physical body would die and the person's soul would be freed from limbo. They also believed after the physical body died, there was a two-minute period where the body either had to be burned or bound to prevent another dark spirit from entering it. People would testify later that this wasn't physical binding or burning. Basically, they would just envision it during prayer. But it's an important thing to remember as we move forward with this case. Back to September 8th, the day the last photo was taken of Ty Lee. Alex Cox's phone would show some irregular patterns of behavior that night. In the month that he had moved to Rexburg, Idaho to be close to Lori, so close in fact he got a townhome in the same complex, his phone never showed him being at Lori's past midnight. However, the night of September 8th, after returning from Yellowstone, his phone would ping on Lori's Wi-Fi from 2.42 a.m. to 3.37 a.m. At 9.21, Alex's phone would show that he was at Chad Daybell's property, and he would stay at that property until roughly 11.39 a.m. His phone then pings at a Del Taco. I only include this because when you find out what transpired that morning, it's impossible to understand how someone could eat at all. The rest of the day, he spent at his apartment. Chad Daybell, the self-proclaimed exalted being, past friend with Jesus, and in one reincarnation, the Holy Spirit himself, was in this life a gravedigger. And what was this gravedigger doing while Alex was gallivanting around his property? He was texting his wife. Yes, let's not forget that Chad Daybell is married to Tammy still and has five beautiful children with her. At 11.53 a.m., right after Alex would have been leaving the property, Chad texted Tammy, Well, I had an interesting morning, understatement of the year, you POS. I felt I should burn all the limb debris by the fire pit before it got too soaked by the coming storms. While I did so, I spotted a big raccoon along the fence. I hurried and got my gun, and he was still walking alone. I got close enough, and one shot did the trick. He is now in our pet cemetery. Fun times. Here's what immediately stands out to me. Have you ever seen a raccoon in the daytime? Probably not. Raccoons are little scavengers that want to take their dumpster dives in the cover of darkness. So that's already a little odd to see one in the morning. It's also odd that your first impulse would be to shoot it instead of going, oh, oh cute, look at its little face and tiny human hands. I mean, that's what I would be doing. I might even whip out my phone and try to get a video. But to shoot it and then bury it? Odd choice. That is unless you're trying to come up with an explanation why your neighbors might have seen a large fire on your property that morning and a fresh dug grave in your pet cemetery. 
Chad sure was busy on September 9th because later that day, Chad signed an application to increase the life insurance payout for Tammy, his wife, to the maximum allowed under his provider. I have to admit, I realize hindsight is 2020, but there are so many reasons for Chandler police to not believe the account of Charles' death being done in self-defense. The fact that the second shot appeared to have been made when Charles was on the ground, no longer a threat to anyone, the fact that Alex waited so long to call police, the fact he pretended to give CPR, but when emergency personnel arrived and began CPR themselves, it was they who cracked his sternum. It was them that noticed the blood coming from Charles' body during CPR, and since he had been shot in the chest, it was their hands that got bloody, indicating there was no way that Alex had been doing life-saving measures because he had no blood on his hands. Why was Lori laughing and making jokes with police when they showed up at her house the day Charles died? Why was she throwing pool parties? The fact that Charles had gone to police to try to get Lori put in an involuntary mental health hold? The fact that Alex left the country and flew to Colombia three days after he shot Charles, but then returned five days later when nothing seemed to be coming of the case? All of this screams, this is fishy. And yes, I'm angry. You can probably hear it in my voice because I have, I just feel like the more could have been done. And if it had, perhaps this case would have ended last episode. Of course, I wish more could have been done before Charles was murdered, but this was so clearly suspicious. And it just makes me so angry because this could have been the point where these people were stopped, but they weren't. And now because they got away with it once, I truly believe it just solidified any doubt Lori may have had about what Chad was claiming, and it certainly emboldened Alex. They'd gotten away with it once, so truly it must have been ordained, right? They weren't bound by the laws you and I are, because they are exalted, magnificent, translated beings, who in Lori's words, quote, if you are exalted in another probation, meaning another life, this time you came to earth, it didn't count for you because you had already proven yourself in another probation, end quote. Meaning she believed her sins committed in this life were forgiven before they were even committed because she had proven herself in a past life. People would testify that Lori, when questioned about aspects of her behavior or the relationship with Chad, who was married, she said, it doesn't count for me. She truly believed she was above human law, and unfortunately, getting away with a plot to murder her husband Charles only proved, at least in her eyes, that it was true. I'm sorry to go off on a tangent there, but I'm just so frustrated that there were so many opportunities to stop them. I'm so frustrated that more was not done, that the dots were not being connected, because then maybe there wouldn't be a part three of this case. But here we are. Around the middle of September, Gibb visited Lori in Rexburg, Idaho. She asked where Ty Lee was since she never saw her during her visit, and Lori told her that she was studying at BYU. Ty Lee had received her GED recently, so this explanation made sense. JJ was still at the house, but it alarmed Gibb when Lori said JJ was also now a zombie. She said that he had 
all of a sudden a larger vocabulary and would sit for long periods of time and silently watch TV. Again, this is a child, a child who was on the autism spectrum and had a service dog that calmed him enough to finally sleep through the night. A service dog, by the way, that Lori tried to put up for sale but was rehomed, removing that comfort from JJ. In a matter of a few months, Lori, his mother, had deserted him when she took off for Hawaii for two and a half months, never once contacting JJ. Then he loses his dad and is moved to an entirely new place in school. I won't pretend that I'm an expert on autism, but I know many people with autism really count on regulation, the comfort that comes with routine. Everything that was familiar or comfortable or safe to JJ was gone. Not to mention this is now September, and presumably at this point we know his sister, who had been at times more like a doting mother to him, was also suddenly gone. And you expect him to not act out? To act a bit unregulated? Come on, this isn't demonic possession. It's a child, and a child who is hurting. Gibb would later say that she was thrown off by Lori saying this. JJ had become a zombie? Because to her, JJ was just JJ, and acting in ways that she had observed him act before. She felt Lori was trying to use behaviors JJ had always had to justify this zombie claim. While Gibb and her boyfriend were still visiting Lori on September 22nd, JJ would attend his last day at Kennedy Elementary. That night, according to the arrest affidavit, a picture would be recovered from Lori's phone showing JJ wearing red pajamas and playing. That same evening, they sat down to record a podcast. Gulp, another thing I have in common with this lady. But JJ was acting up, so Alex took him over to his place so that they could have some quiet while they recorded. Late that evening, Melanie would report that she saw JJ, dressed in those same pajamas, and he appeared to be asleep with his head rested on his uncle's shoulder as Alex carried him back into Lori's home and into his room to presumably put him to bed. I don't know if JJ was actually asleep that evening when he came back into Lori's home, which just breaks my heart. The next morning, September 23rd, 2019, Lori told Melanie that JJ had had an episode and he was acting again like a zombie climbing on the cabinets, and even tearing down a picture of Jesus. And so Alex had to come and take him away. Alex's phone would ping again at Chad Daybell's property that morning. This time, he would only be there for 17 minutes. That same morning, Lori called Kennedy Elementary, where JJ attended school, and told them that JJ was going to be staying at his grandparents for a while, and so he'd be out of school. She later would call back to unenroll him. She also called JJ's nanny that she had hired and told her that JJ's grandparents, Kay and Larry Woodcock, had taken him for a few weeks so she wouldn't need her babysitting services any longer. I want to point out that besides the large insurance settlement from Joe Ryan's passing, like I said before, most report it was around $60,000 or more. Lori also was receiving around $6,000 a month because she was collecting social security benefits supposed to be going to Tylee from Joe's passing. She also was collecting social security benefits for JJ and getting government assistance as a single mother raising a child with special needs. 
she also planned to be getting even more money because this exalted being still needed the best of the best here on earth. Remember Melanie, Lori's niece? Well, she had been married to a man named Brandon for about 10 years. She really looked up to Lori, and why wouldn't she? Lori had stepped in briefly as a mother to her when her own mother had passed away. She was actively involved in the same belief system that Lori introduced her to and took part in these castings. Her husband, like Charles, started to get really concerned about his wife's belief systems. She asked for a divorce from him in the summer of 2019. She would later move to Rexburg to be close to Lori, Chad, and Alex, as they believed Rexburg was where God would protect them in the end times. On October 2nd, 2019, a week after Brandon had moved into his new rental property, Brandon was headed home from the gym and dropping the kids off at school and noticed a Jeep parked next to his new home. The Jeep Wrangler had no tire in the back of it like most Jeeps do, and the back window was open. As he drove closer to his home, he saw a gun with what he believed to be a silencer attached to it. The gun fired at him, shot through his driver's side window, just barely missing his head. Once the panic calmed down, he realized he recognized this vehicle. It was a Jeep with Texas license plates, a green Jeep that had belonged to Charles Vallow, who is now deceased. In fact, Charles had bought it for Ty Lee. It's now believed that Alex Cox was probably the one that shot at Brandon. For him to be crouched in the back of that Jeep, shooting out the back window, someone would have to be in the front acting as a getaway driver. I'm going to let you speculate on who you think would have the most to gain from Brandon being dead, as to who could have been driving the vehicle that day. It's ironic, however, that there is surveillance video that shows Lori and a man believed to be Chad dropping off a car seat and a tire into the storage unit Lori rented just the day prior. Suspicious. Lori also did a little shopping that day. On October 2nd, while Brandon is being hunted down in Arizona and Lori and presumably Chad are hiding a tire in a storage unit, she also used her deceased husband's Amazon account to order herself a Malachite ring for a whopping $35.99. The order was in Charles' name. It was using his card, but it was delivered to Lori's new home in Rexburg. Lori, why are we buying wedding bands on Amazon when your man is married to somebody else? On October 5th, three days after the attempted murder of Brandon, Charles has some exciting news to share with Lori. He texted her, Hello, sweet angel. Big news about Tammy. Please let me know if you're awake. He then wrote, Tammy has been switched. Tammy is in limbo and a level three demonic entity named Viola is in her body. Not fully sure of the timing for removal, but once her actions verify the differences, I don't want to wait. Clearly, they weren't going to have to wait long. Because the next day, after Lori had departed for her impromptu trip, on October 9th, Tammy Daybell would have a similar encounter as Brandon. Fremont County Sheriff's Office. Hi, I need to report something. Okay, go ahead. What's the address? Okay, um, at 202 North, 1900 East. The corner with the blinking yellow light on Salem Highway. Is it a suspicious person? 
She posted this to her Facebook account. Okay, neighbors, something really weird just happened, and I want you to know so that you can watch out. I had gotten home and parked in our front driveway. As I was getting stuff out of the back seat, a guy wearing a ski mask was suddenly standing in the back of my car with a paintball gun. He shot at me several times, although I don't think it was loaded. I yelled for Chad and he ran off around the back of my house. I have no idea what his motive was, and he never spoke, even after I asked him several times what he thought he was doing. I was about to smack him with my freezer meals from enrichment tonight. I like Tammy. (laughs) But I decided to yell for Chad instead. I kind of wish she had smacked him with her freezer meats. I highly doubt that it was a paintball gun. I think because it was such a bizarre and seemingly out of nowhere thing to happen, Tammy just assumed it was some sort of prank. But in reality, this was an attempt on her life. Since obviously Chad was there that night, Who could the masked man be? Obviously, it's probably Alex Cox, the brother who had been anointed by Chad to be Lori's protector, who many would later say fully believed in the teachings of Lori and Chad without question. Just a few days later, on October 19th, Chad Daybell's son would make a 911 call of his own, and then Chad would take over that call. Where's your emergency? We're at 202 North, 1900 East. sounds heartbroken, right? This is the mother of his five children, the woman who had supported him through many financial troubles. Because while Chad was writing all of his books, they certainly weren't making the New York Times bestseller list. She had been by his side without fail for 29 years. She is in wonderful physical shape. Yet just a few days after someone attempts to shoot her, She goes to bed with a terrible cough and winds up dead? He told the coroner that 49-year-old Tammy, who was a school librarian, had recently had fainting episodes and low blood pressure and that she sometimes had leg convulsions and seizures. Charles played the role to onlookers of a grieving husband, writing on his Facebook, I am saddened to share that my beautiful, talented wife Tammy passed away early this morning in her sleep. It is a shock to all of us. She was so wonderful in every way. We are still working out the details, 
but we plan to hold a viewing Monday evening in Springville, Utah, then hold the funeral and burial there on Tuesday. We will hold a memorial service in Rexburg on Wednesday at 1 p.m. We are overwhelmed with the outpouring of love and support. Thank you all so much. But behind the scenes, he was writing to Lori the day after his wife died. And you know how Lori skipped town, went to Arizona for a bit? Conveniently, the next day after Tammy's death, Lori boarded a flight back to Idaho. Hmm. Ironic that she left the day before Tammy was shot at, and the day after Tammy passed away, she's back in town? I think not. She was creating an alibi. When Lori expressed that she missed Chad, Chad responded, I want to get going full steam on the workout plan. Tighten the abs, get a full body tan, and grow my hair out. This could be really good for the both of us. I love that plan, Lori responded. And then Chad wrote, Oh, I hate this guy. I'm feeling sad, but it isn't for the reason everyone thinks. Yeah, Charles wasn't sad for the reason everyone thought. He was sad that he had to pretend to be a grieving widow for a few more days while they went through the memorial services for Tammy. Had to pretend long enough to collect that $430,000 life insurance payout he had increased just a month before her passing. Tammy's body was never autopsied, and she was laid to rest with everyone assuming that she had died of natural causes, a complication to those supposed health problems that she had been having. But to Chad, he had gotten rid of the last obstacle that could keep him and Lori apart. You guys are just not going to believe this, but 17 days after his wife died, Lori and Chad got married on the beaches of Hawaii on November 5th, with Lori donning the malachite ring that she had bought 17 days before Tammy passed away, a ring purchased with her murdered husband's Amazon account. JJ wasn't there performing the services of a ring bearer, and Tylee was not there standing beside her mother as a bridesmaid. Tragically, we would soon find out why. Kay Woodcock was worried sick after not hearing from her grandson in months. When Charles was alive, her and JJ were in contact all of the time. And when Lori disappeared for two and a half months, JJ even went and stayed with Kay for a while. Lori kept ignoring messages from her, and she had had enough. She contacted police and asked them to perform a welfare check on JJ Vallow. Thankfully, she did because this would start a nationwide inquiry into the whereabouts of J.J. and Ty Lee, and soon all of the pieces of this tangled web would be uncovered. On November 26, police went to Lori's home to inquire about the whereabouts of J.J. Lori was not home at the time, so police talked to Alex and Chad, who were there at the residence. Chad literally acted like he didn't even know Lori that well, which is interesting since it was his wife. Also, Rexburg is a small town, and these police officers had actually observed him walking hand in hand and kissing Lori just days after his wife's passing. Police knew that they were married, but played it cool, going along with Chad's vagueness. But Alex, good old spiritual protector of his sister, decided to create a cover story. A cover story he had probably heard Lori tell the school and JJ's nanny. He told police, that J.J. was visiting his grandma Kay Woodcock. And just like that, 
police knew something was wrong. Because what Alex didn't know was that Kay Woodcock was the one who had first contacted the police about JJ's disappearance. Chad tried to drive away from the scene. You'll see this becomes a pattern for him. He likes to be in the thick of things until he thinks the police might be on to him. Then he tries to scurry away like the cockroach he is. Later, when police did talk to Lori, she spun quite the story. Her brother Adam was trying to kill her for her life insurance money. Kay Woodcock was after her to get to JJ. And in her normal, exuberant voice, she tries to manically spin a tale where, of course, she, Lori, is the victim. In fact, she told police because things had gotten so bad, she had sent JJ to live with her friend Melanie Gibb in Arizona while she prepared to move back. Hi, Hi. I'm Lori. Lori, I'm Lieutenant Ball of the Police Department. How are you? You got a minute? Sure. You alone or that help? Or? Uh, my brother's here. Nice to meet you. So, we're here. Wow, this is a big mess. I just talked to the guy on the phone. And what did he ask you? He was just saying that he wanted to do a well check on JJ. So, JJ would be where? He's in Arizona. Who's he with in Arizona? He's with one of my friends in Arizona. Oh. Who's the friend he's with? My friend Melanie. Her son has autism. Her name is Melanie Gibb. I gave him all the information on the phone. Okay, so he can call me. Yeah. What is all this? We're a little what concerned because, well, the officers who were here earlier yeah. were checking and they got a bad vibe like something was going on here because uh, nobody knew anything about a child. They weren't talking. It's because a lot of stuff that was going on. If you want to. No, it's a lot of stuff. So. Well, that's why we're concerned because very, it just was kind of weird. It is very weird. I've had to move around a lot. One of my brothers is trying to kill me. Not the brother that lives here, obviously. He's kind of my protector. My other brother was in with my husband who was trying to kill me for my $2 million life insurance policy. You know no. <laughs> so a lot of stuff has gone on in this last year. It's been a horrible year for us. I've had to move around. And so I was going to move back to Arizona put my son back in the school there because I tried to put him in school here, public school at Kennedy. Okay. He went for two months. We tried it, but he had such a hard time. Now, the person who called is my sister-in-law, but she's his natural grandmother. He's adopted by us. Okay, so her son, who is a drug addict, okay. had a baby with a girl who's a drug addict, and they took him from, you know, CPS took him, gave him to the grandmother. She came and got him, and then she wanted us to adopt him, which we did. We loved him my about? husband and I, who died earlier this year. Okay. He passed away. Since he Sorry passed away, she's been trying to fight me for him and being really horrible to me and that kind of stuff. So she's kind of the paternal grandmother. Okay, thank Does you. That makes sense? That's I'm what sorry. I mean. The paternal grandmother. <laughs> he has autism and ADHD. He doesn't really talk to people. Like he's he's very special needs. So I had him in a special needs school there. She was trying to. So what happened was. My husband, who we were married for 15 years and had raised all these five kids together, switched his life insurance policy to her, right? To? <laughs> to his sister, okay. who got a million dollars when he died, and we got nothing for me to raise JJ, and all the kids got nothing, and everybody got nothing. She got a million dollars. So I knew she was going to try to sue me for him or for JJ? 
Yeah, because she now has this million dollars, so she can hire people to help him, and I have nothing. My but you have nothing. legal custody. He's my son. I adopted him. Right. He was two years. We had him from the time he was eight months old till two years old. So she does nothing that wants to cause me trouble. So I don't tell people the truth about where we are and what we're doing because of those reasons. So I look like a suspect, but I am not a good person. I've raised all of my kids. I've done everything that I'm supposed to do in life, but everyone is causing me trouble right now. So. We don't want to cause a lot of trouble. How long have you been here? We've only been here since September. Okay. We moved up here in September. My daughter to go to BYUI. Your mom. daughter goes to BYUI? Yeah. Does she live here? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. we just, it's been a nightmare. But I'm going to go back to Arizona so I can put him back in the special needs school. He couldn't do the school here. It was too hard for him. He would scream and cry, take him to school. The principal would have to come out, try to drag him out of the car. Like, mm -hmm. it's just it's too hard. But I just don't tell people where I am. I don't tell her where I am ever. And she doesn't have any legal rights to anything. Like, she's been horrible to me since my husband died. My understanding, she never called to, to try to get the child, you know, hey, I'm interested to get the child back, you know. But that. I know, but she sends me these emails with, like, the dates and, like, like she's putting up court stuff, you know, like, just documenting. I haven't heard from him in all this time. And so I've told her that he's fine. But she, See, and we hadn't heard any of that as far as... I'm just saying she's doing this as part of that, yeah. is my understanding. And our only concern in this whole thing yeah, is, that is, the, is the child. I got it. And, and so that's that's where we're at on the... Uh, and then so we I were just a little her. weirded out when... You know, and, and I understand now that we've heard your side of the story. It's awful. They just it? feel like I'm being tracked all the time. I'm like, why are police coming to my well, door? What's an idea? They said they were out visiting with two guys, and I assume one's your brother. Who was visiting? Yeah. Who was the other one? The other guy they were visiting with. There were Who two. Was visiting? Well, we had two detectives over here trying to. Looking for you oh. a little while ago. Oh, because I was at the store. And they ran into probably one of your brothers. In My brother here. and his friend, probably. Oh, who's been that? moving. Chad. Chad from around here? Mm -hmm. uh, it's just a mess. It's constantly causing me trouble. Chad, D-A-Y-B-E-L-O? He's an author. Doesn't he live, like, out in the... Isn't that the Chanty Bell that... Uh, his wife passed away recently. Is that him? I... I don't know. I bet he is. Chad D-A-Y-B-E-L-L. But it sounds familiar as an offer. I think I know, I think I know one of his. He's got a couple of daughters? Uh, he has lots of kids. Okay. All right. Well, anything else? Sorry to bother you. Thank you. Yeah. We don't mean to be a problem. I'm sorry that people are constantly knocking on my door. I just don't want to be found, so. Have you had problems? Because I think we only had. My bro well, the reason I'm moving is because the brother that was going to kill me, that we found emails and texts with my ex-husband, my husband at the time, came showing up here. So he found out where I was, and he was knocking on my door. No, this was your brother? One of my brothers. He showed up here and was knocking on your mm -hmm. door. He lives in Kansas. And you said something about you were getting threatening emails? Well, th no. Just after my husband passed, I found emails and texts between them that they were planning all this stuff to yeah. get rid of me. Do we need to worry about him coming over? 
well, that's why I'm moving back. I'm moving, and I'm not going to be in a place. I'm going to live with my friend, Melanie. Don't tell anybody her name, Gib, because I don't want anything in my name. I put the apartment in my name, but I've been staying over here with my brother because he protects me. Okay. He's very protective of me. If so. he shows back up, you know, you can call, take care of it. Well, that's what I'm saying. Like, I just, like, it's just a nightmare. I mean, I canceled the insurance policy since my husband passed, so there's no money. And what are they going to do with JJ and Patty? Like, what do people think? Yeah. So. Well, <laughs> if you have a problem, shows back up, feel free to call. So police tried calling Gib, but Chad had called her first, telling her the police were going to be calling her, but not to answer. Because time was of the essence here, we have two missing children. Police obviously followed up with Lori. She tells them that JJ had really wanted to see Frozen 2. So that's probably what him and Melanie were up to. They just had their phones off while at the movies, duh. You know, being good patrons of the arts. Because in Lori's mind, even stalling for a few hours would be crucial to the next part of her plan. And that was to get Gib to lie to the police for her. She told Gib she needed her to say that JJ was with her. This is when all the lights seem to have finally turned on for Gib. Whatever Lori and Chad were up to, she needed to do right by these children and wouldn't continue participating in their lies and schemes and crazy beliefs. Chad and Lori had been spiritual leaders in some ways to give, but also good friends. So I'm going to try to save my judgment for her not contacting someone back when Lori was telling her that her children were taken over by evil spirits and were zombies. I'm glad she did not corroborate this lie to police. In fact, Gibb would later work with the police to secretly record phone calls and try to get information out of Lori. So now police really need to put the pressure on, and they show up to Lori and Alex's apartments on November 27th with search warrants. But the apartments were empty. Lori and Chad had fled. Remember the storage unit that Lori had rented and it appeared that her and Chad had put in that car seat and a tire from a vehicle in storage the day before Brandon was shot at from the back of a Jeep registered to Charles, a Jeep whose back window couldn't be opened unless the tire is removed. That storage unit, well, it was full of children's items, clothing, memorabilia, photo albums. And for some reason, this just was so haunting to me. There was two blankets, one made for Ty Lee with pictures of her throughout her childhood years, and one made for JJ with his pictures. It's like these things that once held so much value and fond memories for her children, Lori just had no use for. So much so that she didn't even continue paying for that storage unit. She just put all evidence away that those kids ever existed, ever mattered to her. Shut the door and out of sight, out of mind. When police searched Lori's home, they found an autism medication that was JJ's, an autism medicine that had not been filled since January of that year and still had 17 pills left in the bottle. I, again, am not going to pretend to be an expert in the treatment of autism, but wouldn't you think going off a medicine that was prescribed to him might be yet another reason why his behaviors may have changed, why he was acting out a bit more? Certainly not because he was a zombie. No, it's because Lori stopped caring about anything other than being with Chad. 
Lori stopped caring enough to make sure that JJ had the things he needed to continue succeeding. Lori stopped caring enough to get the medicine filled that he needed to thrive because nothing and no one was more important than holding on to her belief that Chad and herself were destined to be together. To continue stroking her ego by believing that she was a goddess and an exalted being that would go on to lead the 144,000 into the end times. You selfish, wicked woman. Police were connecting the dots now, and they needed answers about Tammy Daybell's death. She had never received an autopsy, but that would soon change. On December 11th, 2019, her body was exhumed and an autopsy finally performed. Tammy Daybell did not die of natural causes. She died of asphyxiation. She also had bruising on her arms and chest, which were consistent with someone being restrained. I know this is gruesome, listeners, but suffocation is not what you see in the movies. It doesn't take just a few seconds. A person would have to be held down, restrained as they fought for air until they lost consciousness. But many sources say that you would then have to continue cutting off their supply to oxygen for three to five minutes. Three to five minutes. While that might not seem like a long time, it is. Assuming that Chad had acted alone in this, and we don't and may never know if he did, three to five minutes is a long time to look at the woman you claim to love for 29 years the mother of your children, and continue to apply that pressure, taking the life she so deserved to have away from her. Death in this manner is so deeply personal. I truly don't have words for someone that could do this to another human, much less a wonderful, beautiful, lively, active, and incredible mother to five. I get emotional when I talk about this, and it's, it's just appalling to me that I never knew Tammy never met her. I've never spoke with her. I've never met her children. And yet I feel like in this moment, as I sit here with tears coming down my face and I have to question, how do I care more about someone that I don't even know than Chad Daybell did when he had been married to her for 29 years? How is that possible? So while the news of Tylee and JJ reached national news and it seemed everyone was looking for these two children, What was Alex Cox, Lori's enforcer and fierce protector, doing? Two days after the police went to him and Lori's home with a search warrant, he was off in Vegas marrying Zulema, who we talked about in last week's episode. But just two weeks later, Alex Cox would be found by Zulema's adult son, unconscious and on the floor. He would be pronounced dead December 12, 2019, and it would be ruled that he died of natural causes. Listeners, I already know what you're thinking. Yeah, right. Natural causes. We don't buy that anymore. That's what they said about Tammy. But his autopsy shows he did die of blood clots to his lungs. But as I dove deeper into the life of Alex Cox, I have a theory. A theory I think is backed up by a police interview with Zilema that seems to have somehow gone overlooked. If I dove into that on this episode, we'd be here for probably another two hours. So please let me know if you want me to do a deep dive into Alex Cox specifically and my speculations, because I feel my detective hat was working overtime trying to make sense of his very timely death. 
how the man seemingly at the center of this all could die at the age of 51, just weeks after police searched his home, and then he marries and changes his last name to Pestinas. Let me know. I'm absolutely willing to dive into it, but only if you guys are interested. But for now, let's get back to Chad and Lori. Police finally caught up with Lori and Chad in Hawaii, because of course they're in Hawaii, soaking up the sun and taking romantic dips in the ocean. And let's not forget, this is all happening just months after his wife had passed away. Months where his five children who lost their mother, who from all accounts was an absolute treasure of a woman, but does he stay close to support them, to be a shoulder to cry on? Why would he? He, like Lori, is willing to abandon and kill to be with his succubus. Police served Lori, finally, and told her that she needed to show up with the children in Rexburg, Idaho. But of course, she would never show up for that court appearance. By February, Lori was in handcuffs being held on a $5 million bail, and two weeks later would be extradited back to Idaho. Chad at this time remained a free man, but that would not last too much longer. Around 7 a.m. June 9, 2020, using the GPS cell phone information from Alex Cox's phone, where it pinged on Chad Daybell's property, the police served him with a search warrant. Chad went across the street to his daughter's property and sat outside in his SUV, intently watching where the officers were searching. As he did, he answered a phone call from none other than Lori Vallow. This is a call from and paid for by Lori, an inmate at Madison County Jail. This call is subject to recording and monitoring. If you don't wish to talk, hang up now. Hello. No. I know parts of that call are hard to make out, but Chad tells her that they are searching the property and to contact her lawyer, Mark. They know this conversation is recorded, but I think it's still pretty obvious they knew what would be found on that property. Lori asks him if she should try to call him later, and his response, I don't know, I don't know, yeah, you can try. Chad would not be answering a call from Lori later that day because police had gone to the site on Chad's property that Alex's phone had pinged the night JJ went missing. They found a four-foot by two-and-a-half-foot area of soil that seemed to have been disturbed and started digging. They soon hit large, flat rocks. They removed them and found sheets of wood paneling. When the paneling was removed, officers were immediately hit with the smell of decomposition. 
Beneath the paneling was the body of J.J. Vallow, still clothed in those red pajamas wrapped in plastic. His autopsy would tell us that he was bound around his forearms, hands, and ankles with duct tape. He died of asphyxia from a white bag that had been placed over his head and duct tape placed over his mouth. I'm honestly trying not to get emotional here because I just can't fathom the fear this innocent seven-year-old felt after all that had happened to him. For the people he was supposed to trust most in this world to do this to him, it's just unimaginable. Alex's fingerprints would be found on the plastic around JJ's body and Lori's hair would be found stuck to the duct tape used to bound JJ's body. The chance that that hair could belong to anyone but Lori Vallow, according to DNA expert Keely Coleman, the probability of randomly selecting a random individual in relation to that DNA profile is 1 in 71 billion. If you remember, Alex's phone would only ping at this location for 17 minutes. It would take a lot longer than that to clear an area that size, place JJ's body in it, cover it with rocks and the wood paneling, and then fill it back up with soil. But who would be an expert on knowing how to do this properly, maybe even preparing it in advance? Grave digger by trade, Chad Daybell. When JJ's remains were discovered, Chad Daybell started up that SUV real quick and tried to flee the scene but police would apprehend him and arrest him just a mile from his home. As the police and the FBI continued their search, they went to the pet cemetery where Alex's phone had pinged for over two and a half hours the night Ty Lee went missing. They did not find a raccoon buried like Chad had told his wife. Instead, the burned and dismembered remains of Ty Lee Ryan were uncovered. We may never know what happened to Ty Lee, but it was clear that she was murdered. And the only sense of peace I have discussing Tylee's death was that the coroner believes that she was already deceased before her body was burned. I want to remind you of the beginning of this episode when I outlined how Chad and Lori believe that a physical body must either be bound or burned so that another evil spirit couldn't enter the physical body. J.J. Vallow was bound with duct tape. Tylee Ryan's body was burned beyond recognition. So where are we at today? Lori Vallow's trial was postponed at first due to COVID, and then she was deemed incompetent to stand trial. Now, if you're thinking, oh, they better not let this woman off with an insanity defense, don't worry. There's actually not a not guilty for a reason of insanity defense allowed in Idaho. They held her at a mental facility where she received treatment. We don't know if this was medication or therapy or a combination of both. But Lori would be released back to jail once mental health care professionals believed that she could aid in her own defense. Lori Vallow recently went to trial, and let me tell you, the testimonies were absolutely heartbreaking. And thank God, Lori Vallow was found guilty in May of this year of conspiring to murder and the murders of J.J. Vallow and Tylee Ryan, as well as conspiring to kill Tammy Daybell. She also was found guilty of grand theft because she unlawfully was using money and social security benefits meant to go to Tylee and JJ. Arizona has also announced that they will be proceeding with conspiracy to commit murder charges for the death of Charles, as well as conspiracy to commit murder for the attempted murder of Brandon Boudreau. She is supposed to receive sentencing July 31st, the end of this month, 
and then they will send her to Arizona to face the charges there. Chad Daybell has not yet gone to trial, but unlike Lori, it seems like they might seek the death penalty for Chad. I will keep you all updated when his trial starts and for Lori's upcoming trials in Arizona. I am truly at a loss for how to wrap up this episode, but perhaps it's maybe to explain why I followed this case so closely and why I felt it was important to cover on this podcast. You may have noticed that I went off course and really focused on the perpetrators in this case and not the lives of the victims, Charles, JJ, Tylee, and Tammy. Not because their lives weren't meaningful, not because they don't deserve to be remembered. They absolutely do. And in my opinion, there will never be justice enough for taking their lives. And for what? And that's why I was so focused so much on Lori, Chad, and Alex. I just could not wrap my head around this. What could make people do such a thing? What romantic passion is worth the lives of four innocent people, including your own children? Who was leading who? But after all my research, I still don't know. I tend to believe it was almost a perfect match of two wildly broken individuals. Lori always seemed to need to be center stage, and then she meets a man, maybe at a time where she was feeling unseen, that dotes on her, showers her not only with praise about her physicality, but tapped into her long-standing religious beliefs and took it to an extreme. Not only was she physically attractive to Chad, but she was important, important to God had a special mission, and Chad was there, encouraging her, wooing her with promises of a life beyond their wildest dreams, a life that would go beyond this one and into eternity, a life where God had a specific plan for just her. As for Chad, I really question if he believed any of this nonsense he was spewing, or if he, as people described him, was soft-spoken, and let's just call a spade a spade here, physically unremarkable man who felt a sense of power, accomplishment, control for the first time, talking about these spiritual revelations that he had had after his supposed near-death experiences. When he met the beautiful, outspoken Lori, maybe he was mesmerized and flattered that she would even pay attention to him. Let's not forget, she started out as a fan of his writing, for goodness sakes. She was his fangirl. Did he sort of just teach these extreme beliefs to Lori to match his end goal of getting the girl? Or is this perhaps the tale of two very, very mentally ill people that in some twist of fate found each other and fed each other's need to matter, to belong in such an extreme way that they'd be willing to kill to maintain it? Or perhaps it's even more simple than all of that. There's a saying that there's three common motives for murder. It's for lust for financial gain, or for power. And in the case of Lori Vallow and Chad Daybell, they seemingly would gain all three. Lust for each other and the desire to be together, financial gain from the insurance and social security benefits, and together, without others interfering or questioning their plan, they would have the power of leading God's chosen people into the end times. After researching this case and listening to hours upon hours of interviews, I am no closer to an answer of how or why someone could kill the people that they claim to love, to murder the children that they were responsible to protect. I do know and I fully believe that had Kay Woodcock and her husband not raised the alarm bell to police, that Lori and Chad would not have stopped killing anyone who got in their way. So perhaps that's the silver lining here. 
that while we mourn the deaths of those trapped in Lori's tangled web, Lori and Chad are right where they belong and will most likely spend the rest of their days on this planet facing the consequences of their actions, never being together as they had planned. And if Chad and Lori's belief in an eternal life after this one is correct, then I am sure, I am 100% confident in fact, that they will spend that eternity paying for the sins they committed in the name of their God. Thank you for joining me on this deep dive. I know this was a hard case to hear. I would love to know your thoughts. And please, again, let me know if you want me to follow this episode up with my speculations on Alex. If you have enjoyed this series, I ask that you take a minute to hit the follow button on Spotify, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, or join us on Instagram at A Case of the Sunday Scaries. Truly does help us grow this podcast and reach more people. I hope you will join us next Sunday for an all-new episode, but as always, until then. Mm -hmm.